eccentric. Uh, really appreciate you joining us. I'm Marianne Reese. I'm the founder of the nonprofit Lifelong Learning of San Marcos, as well as senior, the host of Senior Centric. Uh, and yes, the program really is based around and for us seniors. As a reminder, our senior-centric program is based on two, I think, very fundamental qualities of people, and that being caring and curiosity. And the idea is to learn more, seek the truth and facts, uh, and hopefully that information will not only help you, but help others. However we can use it to do so is a, is a wonderful thing. Uh, as a reminder, Senior Centric usually has three segments. The first being today certainly is dealing with uh, community events. I'm very proud to have R.O. Smith with us and I'll introduce him in just a moment. Uh, the other two segments besides community events is on our health and do you know? So hopefully we'll have time to address all those segments and certainly we wanna start with R.O. But I also want to thank Rob for being the producer today. Gene Randall is, is not able to be with us today, so thank you, Rob. Also, my partner and sister, uh, Becky D. Reese, is uh, missing today because she's recouping from a medical procedure she had. And so, Becky, if you're awake, uh, good for you. Um, so let me introduce uh, R.O. Smith, Dr. R.O. Smith. He is the technical service manager for the San Marcos Library and the curator and for the Cox collection of Texana that's over 6,000 units. So obviously I've asked R.O. to come and talk about uh, drag car racing. <laughs> okay, maybe not. So I'm uh, really excited to, to know more about that, and I appreciate your showing me through the collection and where it's housed and that. But first, just give us a little of your background before you jump into I am from Texas, um, and uh, as a Texan, uh, I learned all about Texas history in sixth grade. All Texans learn about Texas history in sixth grade. Um, <laughs> And I'm from Fort Worth, Texas. Um, uh, my particular sixth grade class took a field trip to Austin, Texas to learn about uh, uh, the Capitol and uh, uh, we went to the State Cemetery. And hmm. um, so I felt pretty good about my Texas history. And, and I'm a trained historian as well. So I felt pretty good about my Texas history. And then I started working with the Mike Cox's, Mike Cox Texas collection and <laughs> working with this donation, this generous donation to the San Marcos Public Library has, uh, has been rewarding professionally and it has increased my personal knowledge of Texas history immensely. There are, uh, when you are processing, when you're cataloging, when you're classifying books, you learn a lot about the contents of the books. And uh, uh, Mike Cox had been collecting Texana, books about Texas history, for most of his life. And these are many of these things are very rare. Many of these things are about Texas counties I did not even know existed. <laughs> there are, uh, I think there are 256 Texas counties. And uh, I have learned, personally learned a lot about Texas history 
by being that's, that's uh, the, the the cataloger and custodian of this collection. So, um, back to your question. I am from Fort Worth, Texas. I came to Austin to go to graduate school. Just out of graduate school, I uh, uh, got my position at the San Marcos Public Library in 1990, and I have been here ever since. So this is my 32nd year as a public employee of the city of San Marcos. What's your degree in? Which one? Um, <laughs> <laughs> my undergraduate degree is in religion and philosophy. Uh, my first master's is in uh, library and information science. And then my doctorate is information studies. And you were telling me earlier that your dissertation was on? End of career librarians. I conducted <laughs> an oral history of uh, end of career librarians to write to create a history of librarianship from the middle part of the 20th century. Wow. So. Okay. Well, I'm. I think we. I, I'll have you on again to talk about <laughs> a lot of a lot of things, and maybe drag racing will fold in there. But uh, again, the why when you do the cataloging and the, mm -hmm. I don't know whether to start with how you even found out about Mike Cox and his Texana and well Mike Cox found us oh, okay and uh, I had throughout my life I had read articles in uh, the Austin American Statesman about Texas history by Mike Cox I did not remember specific articles but that name I was yeah. familiar with that name as someone that wrote about Texas history. Mike Cox wrote uh, for the American Statesman for many years. He has articles in the uh, Texas Highways. He was the PR man for the Texas Highway Department for many oh years. Okay. And, um, and then in my library collection, I have many, many books by Mike Cox about Texas history. Um, he's written over 35 books. Oh my, I didn't know that. And uh, huh. uh, we had most of them in my library. <laughs> so I was aware of who Mike Cox was. In 2017, he uh, approached the library about this gift. Okay. Uh, he and his wife were retiring, downsizing, moving from their large home in Austin to a smaller home in Wimberley. And uh, not only did he need more room in his new house, which meant getting rid of many, many, many books. Um, uh, he also was interested in his legacy and yeah. the fact that he created this immense archive of Texana and he wanted it to be properly cared for and be available for uh, other researchers to use. So he was looking for a library to take the whole collection and and preserve it as a uh, as an archive. Okay. Well, it was the your Tex Anna room already? Did you already have mm. that space, and you just moved him in, or took it over, or when uh, when I first came to San Marcos, the library was on Hutchison Street, uh, right next to Pemberton, yeah. Pennington, Pennington Funeral Home. Yes. And uh, in that library that building there was one corner that had some locked glass cabinets where we put our local history materials and a, a small collection of, of books about texas that we were that were valuable we didn't feel comfortable circulating 
uh, and we had some file cabinets that were locked. When we moved in 1994 to our new building on Hopkins, the building that we are in now, uh, we dedicated a specific build uh, room. It was our uh, quiet study room where people could go and read quietly. And it had many, many, many locked cabinets that had local history on one wall and a small collection of Texana on the other. Um, as we were envisioning how to expand that building uh, in 2017, we knew that we needed, I wanted more room for my local history collection. Um, and so I knew that I wanted a dedicated room just to that, that wouldn't be shared with the quiet study room. The quiet study room would have its own room and I would have my own room, closed stacked room for the local history collection. Um, and that was the time that Mike Cox came hmm. with his offer. And so it was perfect timing because perfect, we were yeah. already working with architects and it gave me an excuse to say, I want even more room. <laughs> <laughs> um, that was in 2017. Uh, we asked the taxpayers of San Marcos to support a bond initiative to expand the library. And, uh, and so Mike's gift became part of that conversation. This hmm, is that's yet another reason why we need to expand the library because we are being entrusted with this, uh, this valuable gift yeah. um, and we need more room. So. Wow. Well, what I okay in the room, and I think you shared with me. You can't check those books out, and right. I, I say this because we. Uh, I mentioned at the beginning that I I <clears throat> run a lifelong learning program, <laughs> and one of the courses that's ongoing is a Texas literature class. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I mean, not class. It's it's a group. Right. So could they go in and check out some of those books, or how does that work? Everything that is in that closed stack is reflected in our library catalog. So uh, there, there are n there's nothing hidden in that locked room that, is n that you cannot find in the catalog. Uh, so what I ask people to do, researchers or people just interested in Texas history, is to start with the library catalog as you would any other library All right. search. And if there is something you find that is in the Texas history room, or in the local history collection, um, you uh, apply to the reference librarian and you say, I would like to view this material. So everything in that collection may be viewed anytime the library is open. Those things are not circulated though. So they must be used in the building because they are valuable and rare and in many, many times irreplaceable. Mm. So, uh, so the answer is, uh, your Texas history researchers uh, may find things in my catalog, may come to the library, and may use those materials in the building. Okay. Yeah. All right. They don't need to wear white gloves or anything, anything <laughs> like that. Huh? No, no, no. Uh, we're, we're not that sophisticated. Well, you said this this uh, collection idea coming to the library started mm -hmm. in 2017, mm -hmm. but I remember reading that it was dedicated in April of tw tw 23rd of this of year. Of this year, of this so year. So did it take five years to? 
Uh, well, I, the building had to be built. The building had to be built. That was our COVID project. Yeah. And, um, uh, and the cataloging and processing of these materials took a great deal of time. And I'm still not finished. Um, uh, uh, in many respects, the cataloging of these materials was my personal COVID project because uh, <laughs> this was uh, uh, work I could do in isolation. Um, and uh, uh, it is over 5,000 materials. It takes time and patience, uh, and I'm still not done. All right, you, you mentioned about you'd learned a lot about mm -hmm. Texas history through the cataloging. Right. To me, cataloging is looking at a, a number or a name and putting it in alphabetical order. Mm -hmm. That's not cataloging. Cataloging, uh, cataloging is shorthand for descriptive cataloging. Okay. And what we are doing is we are making a bibliographic surrogate that someone can access to know more about the physical item. And so that those bibliographic surrogates are in my online catalog. And the description in my online catalog should be precise enough so that you know, looking at my description, whether it is the material that you actually need to solve your research question. And so I'm looking at not just the title and the author, uh, but assigning subject headings, figuring out uh, uh, keywords that will help researchers from afar Wow. find the correct item in my collection. Um, uh, what I am doing is describing this physical item in a way that uh, patrons, library patrons and researchers will be able to find it and know that I have this thing. And so um, often I'm wow. transcribing uh, a little paragraph about what it is. Um, uh, I, I, descriptive cataloging is making a, um, a bibliographic surrogate that stands in the place of the actual item. Hmm. So. Well, that makes more sense. I was kind of stunned. Like you said, I learned so much by cataloging. And right, right. You can see my naivety <laughs> in understanding <laughs> the library science. There, there's more to it. Well, uh, how did Mike Cox, Mr. Cox, know that you and the San Marcos Library mm. were where his collection should live? Uh, I am not sure. <laughs> I, I know that he was had been uh, uh, trying to find the right match. Some, he had approached some other more prestigious institutions, and um, uh, they had turned him down. And they probably turned him down because this is 6,000 volumes. It's big. Um, it takes some uh, significant resources to house it and significant resources to catalog it. <laughs> and uh, um, I can imagine some, some of the more prestigious institutions said, um, this is great but I need to build this into my budget for two years from now. And, right. Um, and it hit just the right time, as it you was, said. It was the perfect timing wow. for the San Marcos Public Library to accept it. Do you think this will bring any other kind of collections to the San Marcos, or is it kind of an isolated event? Well, frankly, I hope it's isolated, because 
San Marcos is not a <laughs> sophisticated research institution. What I would like San Marcos Public Library to be known for is its local history collection about Hayes County mm-hmm. and the special Mike Cox Texana collection. Um, and, 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 and frankly, anything else needs to be at a, 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 an academic institution. Well, it's so. nice at Texas State with the Whitliff collection. That's right. It's a very nice companion. It's a companion. Yeah. And, of yeah. course, they know about this. Yes, yes, yeah. yes. <laughs> I, I can imagine that right. they would know about it. Well, what? so in the collection, it's not just books. It's it, mainly books, but it's also um, uh, tourist, tourist pamphlets mm-hmm. from... Uh, different cities that were published during the uh, Texas Centennial. The Texas Centennial was 1936, so Mm -hmm. these things are quite old. Um, uh, Things from the American Bicentennial, many Texas counties produced uh, 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 kind of limited edition uh, brochures about their history for the the Bicentennial. Mm. And so these kind of, not quite books, but substantial pamphlets um, are being carefully cataloged and put into vertical files and so yeah what what have you found to be the most I guess several questions the most um, you, you talk about the value maybe perhaps the most valuable the most interesting the most unique or does that you know for me um, processing these things and realizing that Mike Cox spent a lifetime, had a lifetime interest in, in, in books and in Texas history and how they, in this collection is how they intersected. And so as I'm processing things, I can see things from certain collections that preceded Mike, that where he, mm. I, I keep on seeing the same nameplates of different Texas history professors. And it's like, oh, this is another thing that, that, that Mike got from Doby, for instance. Um, okay. And uh, uh, kind of by handling each of these things, I can sort of see how Mike Cox acquired this collection. And, and that, that's a whole other very interesting story. And Mike is actually right now writing a book about how he collected these things and his interest in Texas history. Instead of writing a book about Texas history. So there'll be stories. And this is a, a, a meta history. His, how he became interested in Texas history, how he collected uh, all of these things to, to create this archive. Has he come back to the library to visit? Many times. Co- I'm many about times. to say, it's we, like, we, check your baby. <laughs> we, we work together. Uh, 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 he, uh, he's very involved and I'm very grateful. And, uh, and we've been involved in other things. Uh, kind of midway through this process, it, I became aware that not J. Frank Doby, but uh, Dudley Doby's house on San Antonio Street was being sold. He was the brother. Again. Our uh, Co- first cousin, I believe. First cousin, okay. Yeah. And so Dudley Doby wrote Dudley Doby. The Centennial History of San Marcos in Hayes County that I really, really believe is the best history hmm. of Hayes County. And Dudley Doby had uh, his own fascinating life and career. And uh, in the back of his house on San Antonio Street had a 
printing press where he would print small runs of historical documents and that printing press was still in the garage of this uh -huh. house on San Antonio. It had conveyed through two different sales. <laughs> and so the woman that was living there uh, three, four, two, three years ago, she contacted me and said, you know, I've got this printing press that belonged <laughs> to Adobe and, and it's, it conveyed from the previous owner and the previous owner. And uh, so I contacted Mike, I said, Mike, Dudley Doby's press is still on San Antonio Street. Do you think we could do anything with this? And uh, so we worked together to kind of go through that garage and find some historical treasures. Oh wow! And he found a uh, a museum, a printing museum, willing to take this three or four ton iron press, and so it is safely in a historical collection. Is that here in Texas, the collection? So I believe it's in West Texas now, yeah. Now that's a, that, that's a big <laughs> truck. <laughs> that's amazing. Well, I bet there are a lot of stories that maybe will be in his book or something I like hope so. that. Yeah. 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 Well, what about you personally? I, since you've been at the library since mm -hmm. 1990, 32-year mm -hmm. career is a wonderful career. Mm -hmm. Are you... Are you going to write a book? Or are, you, <laughs> are you going well, to last until you catalog you, you all know, this? I, I, I've written my book. I've written my book of, of, about librarianship. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, I still have some work to do with the Mike Cox collection. And uh, I've told my boss that when I'm finished with that, I will retire. So <laughs> that, that, that could be years. <laughs> no, it's going to be one year. <laughs> one year. <laughs> Well, uh, anything else that you can think of or could share? I've you know, something that's always fascinated me, something I've known about Texas history, and this is a little macabre, um, <laughs> but I, what I knew was that um, uh, Anson Jones, the first vice president of Texas, is that true? No, no, the last president of Texas, of the Republic of Texas. Okay. That after... He signed away Texas and it became part of the United States. Uh, and this is a man who had fought in the Texas Revolution, was instrumental in the founding of the Republic, um, that, uh, that he had been a suicide. He had committed suicide after uh, uh, retiring as president of Texas. And I had, I, I'd always found that fact kind of interesting. <laughs> like, after you have fought the Texas Revolution, after you have founded a re republic, after you have, you know, after statehood, what's left to do? And anyway, he, for whatever reason, he, uh, he committed suicide. And I've always been kind of fascinated by that. While researching this collection, while cataloging this, I have found a whole slate of other Texas revolutionary heroes that also committed suicide after statehood. Oh and, my gosh. <laughs> uh, and so Sidney Sherman, Peter Grayson, George Childress, Thomas Rusk, and James Collinsworth. If you go to any old Texas city, you will see streets named Collinsworth and Rusk and Childress. Um, there are counties named mm -hmm. Rusk and Childress and Grayson. Oddly, Sherman, Texas is the um, 
county seat of Grayson County. And both Sherman and Grayson were two of these Texas revolutionary heroes that committed suicide after statehood. And so I've been, wow. maybe there is a book about Texas revolutionary suicides after statehood. I don't know, <laughs> but by working oh, through my. this project, I've, I've learned about these others and it, it, it fascinates me. It um, is. One of the, you know, in politics, um, rarely is there, I don't know, sympathy, mercy, kindness involved. And one of After my favorite served. <laughs> one of my favorite buildings in downtown Austin, which is about to be torn down, I believe, um, is on West Fifth Street. Is that true? West Fifth Street. And it was a beautiful Art Deco, Art Modern building that was the home of the nascent Texas State Hospital. So it was the administrative building for our mental health, mental health. Retardation services uh, in the middle of the 20th century. It was constructed in the 1940s. Yeah. And they named this building Far Anson Jones, which, oh, which wow. is, was always interesting to me. This, this beautiful building named after Anson Jones, who, who suffered from mental health issues. And, uh, uh, and I don't know where I'm going with that, except... <laughs> It's Working with this collection yeah. has, has led me to others yeah. that had some mental health issues after, after being Texas revolutionary heroes. So That's really interesting. <laughs> it really is. I'm trying to put it together with things I've been looking at. We mm. talked about On Your Health and what else we do here. <laughs> and there's got to be something mm. really quite interesting and do you know if they committed suicide about the same time or just after Af after statehood is, just, is is what i have found wow yeah yeah so well <laughs> i'm i'm looking forward to that because <laughs> that that is quite interesting i quite interesting um one of the nice things about the 21st century and 21st century cataloging the librarian the library science of my work is that everything I do to create bibliographic surrogates for these individual Texana items in the Mike Cox collection, these go into my online catalog and they're coded in a way that after some time, Google finds them. And so someone in Wisconsin, someone in Saudi Arabia, Googling uh, Anson Jones might find, if they looked deep enough, records in my collection, in our collection, our wow. San Marcos Public Library collection. And so, you know, all the work that I do to, uh, to describe these individual items, it's not just for San Marcos, it's not just for our catalog. Um, in the 21st century, you know, Google finds us, and that's amazing. And and that's amazing. we've already been contacted by a couple of researchers that said, <laughs> "Really, do you actually have this thing?" And it's like, yes, I do. <laughs> and uh, and sometimes their questions are discreet enough that I can go get the item, 
find what I think they need, scan it, and just email it to them. Other times, they will have to come from Wisconsin or Saudi Arabia to San Marcos to actually look <laughs> at the item. But That's but amazing. People are finding these things uh, because of the good work we do at the San Marcos Public Library. And we're able to share these things uh, that, that Mike is interested with yeah. us. Well, that's a, a wonderful thing to know about and makes me even more proud of, of the San Marcos Library, but especially your work with this particular project. And I can see where it'll, it'll take time cataloging now that I understand <laughs> really what that all that involves. Well, I really want to thank you for, for joining me. And um, I might be back in touch. I think you've got more to share with us. <laughs> so I really appreciate it. All right, and you are listening to Senior Centric here on KZSM.org, True Community Radio. And the views expressed on this show are those of the hosts and the guests and not necessarily those of KZSM or SMTX CRA. We're going to be right back after this station break. .org in San Marcos, Texas. The True Community Radio. It's summertime here in Texas. For a lot of kids, it's the best time of the year. But plenty of children in Texas and across the U.S. depend on the meals they get at school. For them, summer can be a time of hunger. That's why I'm teaming up with my friends at No Kid Hungry to make sure every kid gets a healthy food that they need when school's out. If you need to find free meals for your kids this summer, just text the word FOOD to 304-304 to find a local program serving free meals in your community. That's F-O-O-D to 304 304-304. Let's make sure every kid has a great summer. This is Patsy Liao, host of a new show here on KZSM.org, appreciating classical music. Join me every fourth Thursday at 2 p.m. for an exploration of what makes classical music relevant today. Celebrate the best of classical composers and their masterpieces in an easy-to-digest, hour-long show. That's appreciating classical music with me, Patsy Liao, right here on KZSM.org, True Community Radio. Why was the basketball court all wet? Because the players kept dribbling on it. The dad joke. <laughs> Corny, groan-worthy, but also one of the simplest ways to share a moment with your kids. What did the buffalo say when he dropped his son off for school? Bye, son. <laughs> so take a moment to make your kid laugh, because dad jokes rule. Make your kid laugh today. Go to fatherhood.gov. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and the Ad Council. Hi, we're the Goo Goo Dolls. We're fortunate that our daughters have what they need to grow and learn. But that isn't the case for nearly 13 million kids in the U.S. that struggle with hunger. Childhood hunger is a heartbreaking reality that Feeding America is working to change. Each year, the Feeding America network of food banks rescues billions of pounds of good food that would have gone to waste and provides it to families and children in need. You can help kids in need in your community by visiting feedingamerica.org. Brought to you by Feeding America and the Ad Council. Frank Zappa said, so many books, so little time. Quiet, Groucho Marx observed, outside of a dog, a book is a man's best friend. Inside of a dog, it's too dark to read. Quiet! To find out what others think about books. Welcome back. Thank you. I, I don't know about you. All I hope I know about you and that you enjoyed R.O.'s um, conversation with us about the library and certainly the Mike Cox collection. Rob and I were talking about it in the break, and I, we think he has more stories and more information to share with us. So look forward to having him again. And again, thank you for tuning in to our senior-centric
program. Uh, what I'm going to spend some time on now is is really uh, revisiting and uh, basically what I've been spending most of the time on 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 our health issues, and that's been the the whole idea of aging and aging better. And what I hope to do and plan to do for you today is is to summarize what I've presented in in such more detail uh, than I will today, but summarize that information and tie it together with, with the idea of, so, so what can we do? I've intimated a little bit about that at our last program last month, but be a little bit more specific um, at this time. So the, the idea of aging, I think a lot of people think about aging as more of a series of events that you are aging, say, when uh, perhaps you have grandchildren, or maybe you start considering retiring. R.O. talked about Mike Cox downsizing. You know, those were all events and signs of, that we're getting older. And of course, the death of friends and family is certainly a, an event that makes us stop and think about aging. Other times you think about aging is chronological, years past. I've heard so many times, and I think perhaps I've even said it, well, 60's the new 50, and 70's the new 60. Well, so chronological age certainly has some significance, but, but it's not the whole story about aging. If you talk to a gerontologist, who, you know, the physicians, the scientists that study aging, you'll really hear more about interactions, that aging is um, interactions of lifelong, <clears throat> excuse me, influences. Certainly you'll hear things, it's your heredity is a factor. The environment is a factor, such as how much UV light comes through the ozone layer because it causes skin damage and some of the damaging that we ascribe to aging. Also, your culture, your diet. What have you done for leisure and exercise? What has that been your process and interest throughout your lifetime? Past illnesses, of course, impact aging. So there are so many other factors and ways to look at aging. Uh, but the bottom line, unlike adolescence, which you can predict when someone's going into puberty and the other changes that we see in our youth, uh, those you can predict with, with pretty good quality within a couple of years, some of those stages of life. But the bottom line about aging, there is no way to accurately predict how you, how we, how I will age. And the reason being is that all organisms age over time. And it's because it's a biological process. It's not truly chronological although it's tied to that, the bottom line of aging is it's a biological, highly complex series of chemical reactions. And remember in, in one of our other conversations that talked about just our bodies, that the average adult body has around 30 to 37 trillion cells. And in each of those cells, there's approximately 100 different chemicals that exist within that cell. And in any given second, hundreds of thousands of chemical reactions taking place. 
And when you start thinking about that complexity of a cell within each of those trillions of cells that constitute our body, just how important just the simple organization of a cell is. So I'm not gonna name all the cell structures in it. If you're interested, like so much of what I share, I hope you'll, like Mike said, Google it. There's so many things on Google. Put a word into that search area and it's amazing what you'll find. But the idea of aging being at the cellular level is absolutely true. But what aging is, is a progressive decline of the functionality of those cells. Again, keep in mind the specificity, the amount of chemical, reaction, chemical reactions going on per second. It's absolutely overwhelming. But with this progressive decline in the cell structure and its ability to function as it should, what you find is a reduction or a, a, in the homeostatic mechanisms, that homeostasis just means steady state or same state. It's like we can say that everyone has an average of a 98.6 degree Fahrenheit temperature or that uh, your blood pressure should be 120 to 80. So there are chemical mechanisms within our body that exist to maintain that stability, that average, that balance. Uh, there's also pathways, chemical pathways that are restorative or reparative. These pathways and processes progressively decline, again, over time. So the damage that is done and that accumulates is, is significant, and it's at the molecular cellular level, damage is done. A couple of examples, like our immune system. We all, during the COVID period, we've been told as we age and we older, uh, Folks need to be very careful, and we still do, of attracting COVID, that particular uh, flu variety, primarily because we have weakened immune systems. You don't have to be, have been sick or had chemotherapy or something like that, because as we age, our immune system weakens normally. Uh, what happens, you don't the white blood cells aren't as active. The macrophages, the ones that actually gobble up antigens, foreign material that enters our body, like bacteria and viruses, it becomes weakened. It is slower to react. Another example of a restorative function that starts declining with age is something that we're really just finding out more about, and it occurs during your sleep. And it's basically why when you, you know that you lack sleep when you are, your reasoning is impaired or your problem solving is not up to snuff, your attention to, to detail is lacking. So you, lack of sleep causes several issues that you can recognize, but what you don't know or feel or sense is that during that sleep period, the brain, there's a system within the brain that, that actually drains waste materials out of the brain. And the fluid that does this process is the cerebrospinal fluid, which is a clear liquid, that in, at night, while you sleep, over a period of time, there's waves that can be 
determined, and those waves are actually the functioning of this fluid moving through the brain. There are little grooves in the brain that align all the blood vessels that feed the brain oxygen and glucose that it functions on. But what this fluid does, it clears out the waste materials, dead neurons, they do die. We do have some regenerative para power of neurons, but neurons die. They're replaced just like red blood cells and all the other skin cells that slough off our bodies. <clears throat> so those are, are removed during the sleep period as well as those beta uh, amyloids that we hear about that accumulate over time that create the different dementias and lead and can lead to Alzheimer's. This during our sleep period. So as we talk about restorative factors and, and processes, these are just two examples of, of so many. So uh, we just have to realize that aging is a normal process but the focus of most of my talks have been really the abnormal, what's going on now in terms of we are accelerating our aging process and by doing through chronic inflammation. And I've spent some time about talking about, so what is chronic inflammation? We know that basically what it does is cause this accelerated loss of functionality. I, I, you know, you always hate to talk about it, but <laughs> you have to. These, what, it, what ends up and what is causing and what we're seeing not only in the United States of America, but across the world in mainly the more advanced countries, but you're seeing the same phenomenon of the number of adults that have age-related diseases is absolutely uh, growing so fast, it's, I wouldn't say exponentially, but it's growing at such a rate that it has caused uh, the World Health Organization to recognize and start trying to take steps, as well as the United States, to research more these age-related diseases, because it's with the, the, the older population increasing and the diseases that we have, such as diabetes, osteoarthritis, cancer, Alzheimer's disease, those other related uh, dementias, that it's, if you look at it from a cost basis, the medical bills for not only the countries, but each of us is just going, is skyrocketing. It's going, it is a major concern for most governments within the world how to deal with this and, and again why research monies are being placed uh, to research these particular topics, age-related diseases. So let me go back to chronic inflammation and, and say to you that there are basically the primary pathways or chemical pathways that are the predictors and causative factors of chronic inflammation are your immune system, your stress response system, which is also, or earlier on, decades ago, referred to as the fight or flight response. It's now called the stress 
response. And the third chemical pathway or process is oxidative stress. All of these have a normal and very important role to play in our bodies. But as we get older, again, this dysfunction, this progressive de de declining occurs. So let me be a little specific uh, about the first, and that's the immune system. And again, remember the immune system evolved back with our, our ancestors millions of years ago. And I've asked you and ask you now to think about our ancestors then and the environment in which they lived. Again, there was no processed food. I'll tell you what there wasn't. Processed food, highly sugared substances. Stress was more acute. In other words, happened in short term. It didn't last continuously for months and months and into years as it does now. So life was different then. And that period, millions of years ago, is when the immune system evolved. And it evolved primarily so that individuals would live to a reproductive age and doing so, reproducing, procreate and allow the species to continue. So immune system and evolution is all about continuing the species. And it evolved during a very different time than we do today living in, in modern, highly technologized, processed food times. So the immune system is good, but it now interacts in a negative way with your stress response. And like the immune system, the stress response is, is an important feature of within all of us, and it does help with survival. Um, the main thing about the stress response is, again, it's very quick. You see something, you sense something, whether by visually or olfactory, you smell, or you see a movement. And whatever the trigger is, or the response is similar. And individuals are very unique, and they have different tolerances and sensitivities to these triggers. So the trigger may vary with individuals, but the response does not. The response is what is referred to, if you look at the literature, the HPA axis, which refers to the hippocampus, the pituitary gland, and the adrenals that sit atop your kidneys. That the visual action of seeing something, the olfactory nerve or the optic nerve sends a direct signal to this part of the brain and the, the HP system, the hippocampus and the pituitary gland are formed or located in the middle of your midbrain. And so when that gets a direct stimulus, the nerves from the, that's innervated from the vision that you see causes a very quick release of adrenaline. We used to call it adrenaline. Now you'll find in the literature it's called epinephrine and norepinephrine, and then following that initial hit, which gives you the boost of energy to fight or flee, uh, is followed with a, the release of another hormone called cortisol. And I'll re go back to cortisol uh, in, in just a moment. 
So that's, that is the intent of the stress response, AKA fight or flight response, is to prepare the body with adrenaline jolt uh, to energy goes with the cortisol also. Glucose is immediately sent to various parts of your body, your muscles and your brain so that you make the right decision, you quickly make the decision to avoid that cobra that's looking, staring at you, or to run from it. Do you know, one thing or another. You know, to, so that's, again, the stress response. It has survival technique because it does prepare the body for a very fast, strong reaction that would certainly, hopefully, allow you to live past that trigger. Now, the way with aging and this slow decline occurring, what happens is the pathway with what normally would happen is cortisol when in the stress response sends glucose and other substances out, but mainly glucose. But if under long-term stress, in other words, it's not an immediate, it's not a snake, it's a work that is totally taking you down. It's the loss of a loved one that has you grieving for months and years. This is stress. This is called chronic stress. And during chronic stress, there, the cortisol does not stop being produced you overproduce this particular hormone, which is referred to as the stress hormone. And what that causes is your immune system to keep saying, oh, there's danger. I've got to send my white blood cells out in case that danger ends in some kind of tear, a, a, an injury. So the white, the immune system is on alert because cortisol is saying, Something's out there, something's out there, and you never get relief. So what ends up happening is that you are flooding your body due to your chronic stress, stress that does not abate with cortisol, which causes this one particular, there are five types of white blood cells, but it causes this one particular type of white blood cell called the macrophage to release a chemical, actually it's a series of maybe a hundred different chemicals that are called totally as cytokines. Cytokines are the chemical that will actually engulf, and I'll use the term eat, any foreign pro protein that invades or even attaches to your skin or you take in into your digestive system. Those cells are just all running all over your body all the time either through your blood system or your lymphatic system. So those macrophages are there and the cytokines start taking on any protein that they see and it starts seeing your own cells, your own protein that makes up your DNA, that makes up every part of your cells and your body, there's protein molecules. The cytokines destroy it, they eat it. And so that's, that is another 
causation, we talked about accumu accumulation of dead cells, of cellular and molecular debris. And that starts, that interaction between the immune system and stress response starts the degradation and the process that accumulates or sums up to be called chronic inflammation. There is a third process, and I'm just looking at my time, and what I will mention is, is it, and it's oxidation. Oxidation, again, like the immune system, like the stress response, is evolved with all good intent and with survival uh, mechanisms to it. Oxidation is simply a term referred to a chemical reaction that produces, that helps, helps you break down glucose, it's called cellular respiration, and produce the energy of your body, adenosine triphosphate, or ATP. So I apologize for the chemistry, but I think it helps <laughs> to understand the complexity. But oxidation and cellular uh, respiration and glu glucose production into ATP is all very basic and important and goes on in every cell. But in normally, it produces not only ATP, but a byproduct of these, these oxidative reactions is uh, something called free radicals. And if you've been reading a lot of articles on, on Mediterranean diet and age-related, you'll see that term, oxidative stress, free radicals. But these free radicals are, again, another chemical species that is highly reactive because it lacks at least it lacks one electron in its, <laughs> apologies, in its outer orbit. And so it makes it very reactive because atoms are only happy when they have two electrons, all paired elect uh, electrons in, all paired electrons in their outer orbit. Okay, that's normal, you get them, but your body also produces, this is the homostasis, steady state. Your body also produces antioxidants and antioxidants and free radicals join together. The antioxidant gives an electron to the free radical thereby neutralizing it. If free radicals outbalance antioxidants in your body, free radicals also cause damage to your DNA, uh, the chemical process is very similar to the macrophage cytokines. They damage the cells, they disrupt the DNA, they can change its structures, they can call mutations. Primary a DNA big concern. All right, to sum up, because I'm looking at our time, and I have some concern that I'm overwhelming you, but let me just say, what we have seen and what what I'm going to end with is the idea that there are three normal pathways, chemical pathways, systems that have benefit to survival to all primates, and certainly we are primates and to us. But as we age and some of the choices we make exacerbate the normalcy of these reactions, it causes damage to our cells, to our DNA. So oxidative stress is 
use to say, all right, you've got more free radicals than you have antioxidants. The only thing that we can do, or the best thing we can do, is eat the food and drink the drinks that have antioxidants that we consume and help balance and take care of the free radicals by neutralizing them through a chemical reaction. I mentioned at the beginning that I was planning on then telling you, so what can we do? And I'm going to briefly tell you, but at our next session, next month, I will spend about 10 or 15 minutes being more specific about making a plan, why you should eat, why you should look at the DASH diet or the Mediterranean diet and eat more vegetables, especially highly colored because they have polyphenols in it that are antioxidant. So I've introduced the term antioxidant, good thing. Uh, those, are, those fight free radicals. So your body needs help, especially as we age, those mechanisms break down. But in addition, eating sugar, eating processed foods adds free radicals. Not only are you making them yourself, and your, your system is kind of declining, but you're adding even more through a poor diet. And you can't say anything, but it's a poor diet. If you eat highly processed foods, a lot of red meat, a lot of sugar, uh, too many fats, olive oil, canola oil. But I see our time is up. I wanna go back to that next month and I hope you join me. Thank you very much eat better. And you've been listening to Senior Centric here on KZSM.org and we'll be back with you next month.